me invite you to turn to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. We are glory thieves. We often work hard to steal glory from other people, but I think primarily from God. And we do this by taking pride in our own accomplishments, by not deflecting the praise that comes to us to God. But there are times in life when God comes along and He intervenes in such a way that only He can receive the glory. Has God ever done that in your life where there was nothing you could say other than this was God at work? There will be no stealing of God's glory in heaven. I think for all of eternity, we will be spending time recounting the events that took place during our lives. And we will be reminded as we recount of the mercies that we received and as we hear other people do the same, we will be reminded that we contributed nothing to our standing that we have before God. That we didn't do anything to earn His favor. We won't be, as we're recounting the events of our lives, we won't be looking around talking about all the great things we have done. No, we will forever be praising God for what He has done through us. God is the one who chose us. God is the one who sent His Son to purchase us. We deserved nothing but His wrath, and yet He gave us everything that we have through grace, the grace that comes from Christ Jesus. What an amazing God we serve. God from start to finish, deserves all the glory. And because He deserves all the glory, He will not share His glory with other people. And He often uses unusual and often inferior means in order to prove that glory belongs to Him and to Him alone. And that is exactly what takes place here, primarily in chapter 7, but we're going to look at some uh, context here at the end of chapter 6 and then also at, at the beginning of chapter 8. Okay, so let me read our passage for us tonight. I'll start in chapter 6, verse 33. This is the Word of God. Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the sons of the east assembled themselves and they crossed over and camped in the valley of Jezreel. So the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew a trump trumpet and the Abiezrites were called together to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh and they also were called together to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali and they came up to meet them. Then Gideon said to God, If you will deliver Israel through me, as you have spoken, behold, I will put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor and if there is dew on the fleece only, and is dry on all the ground, then I will know that you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. And it was so. When he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he drained the dew from the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not let your anger burn against me that I might speak once more. Please, let me make a test once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, and let there be dew on all the ground. God did so that night, for it was dry only on the fleece, and dew was on all the ground. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah, 
in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midian into your hands, for Israel would become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. Now therefore come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remained. Then the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Therefore, it shall be that he of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But everyone of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, You shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Now the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was three hundred. And all the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the three hundred who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hands. So let all the other people go, each man to his home. So the three hundred men took the people's provisions and their trumpets into their hands. And Gideon sent all the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained the three hundred men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Now the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hands. But if you're afraid to go down, go with Purah, your servant, down to the camp, and you will hear what they say. And afterward, your hands will be strengthened, that you may go down against the camp. So he went with Purah, his servant, down to the outpost of the army that was in the camp. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley, as numerous as locusts. And their camels were without number, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. When Gideon came, behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend. And he said, Behold, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian. And it came to the tent and struck it so that it fell. And it turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. His friend replied, This is nothing less than the sword of Gideon and the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. When Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hands. He divided the three hundred men into three companies. And he put trumpets and empty pitchers into the hands of all of them with torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I and all who are with me blow the trumpet, then you also blow the trumpets all around the camp and say, For the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. When they had just posted the watch, And they blew the trumpets and smashed the pitchers that were in their hands. When the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing and cried, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran crying out as they fled. When they blew 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another, even throughout the whole army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zerorah, as far as the edge of Abel Maholah by Tabit. The men of Israel were summoned from Naphtali and Asher and all Manasseh, and they pursued Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, 
Come down against Midian and take the waters before them as far as Beth Bera and the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were summoned and they took the waters as far as Beth Bera and the Jordan. They captured the two leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, and they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and they killed Zeb at the winepress of Zeb while they, while they pursued Midian. And they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon from across the Jordan. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, what is this thing you have done to us, not calling us, when, when you went to fight against Midian? And they contended with him vigorously. But he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezar? God has given the leaders of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb into your hands. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger subsided when he said that. God delivers His people through inferior means so that He alone receives the glory. God delivers His people through inferior means so that He alone receives the glory. Very simply, two points, two main points tonight. First, God delivers His people through inferior means. Chapter 6 and chapter 7. And then... God alone receives the glory. We'll see that primarily in chapter 8. Alright, so first, God delivers His people through inferior means. There are three specific ways in which God delivers His people through inferior means. First, through an inferior leader. Did you notice that? Through an inferior leader. He was weak in faith. We started to see the weakness of Gideon last week. Remember, the angel of the Lord came to him under the oak tree and he said, Go, Gideon, deliver Israel. I am with you. And Gideon said, No, you're not. You have abandoned us. Why has all this bad stuff happened to us? Explain all this trouble that's going on. You are not with us. And God says, Go. In chapter 6, verse 14, Have I not sent you? And Gideon says, But, but I'm the weakest in the family, and, and my tribe is not known for its military strength, and so I, I can't do this. And God's reply is, surely I will be with you. So three times, I am with you. Have I not sent you? I surely will be with you, Gideon. And Gideon replies, okay, if it's really you, last week we saw this, if it's really you, let me see a sign. You stay here, I'll be right back. comes back with an offering, a goat, and some an ephah of, of fine flour. And he puts it on the rock. The angel of the Lord touches the rock with the edge of his staff. It, it's consumed with fire and the angel of the Lord vanishes. Gideon has his sign. He's had it proven to him that this was the angel of the Lord and that the Lord was with him. And so the Lord commissions him, Gideon, now that you've seen that it is I, now go. You have responsibility. Before you have victory over your external enemies, Midian, the Amalekites and the other eastern people, then you first need to have victory within. You need to kill the enemies within. What were those enemies? The false gods that his people were worshiping, right? So go to the tent near your father's tent where he set up a, a little individual shrine. The altar of Baal and the Asherah pole are set up there. And I want you to take those down. Gideon, in fear, goes in the cloak of night with ten men. And he obeys. 
Immediately after that, he starts to gather men for battle, which is what we read about in verses 33 through 35. So he goes around to the nearby tribes and he says, all right, guys, come on. God said he's going to give Midian into our hands. So you guys come together with me and they set up camp. But even though God had promised that they would have the victory and Gideon now had his army, Gideon is still not sure that he's going to receive the victory. Gideon at this time has 32,000 men. And he's still not sure that God will give him the victory. He is a man of weak faith. And we see this in verses 36 through 40 again when he asks for a third, a second and a third sign. The first sign was in uh, the previous... I think it's in verse 17. Chapter 6, verse 17. That was the first time he asked for a sign. Here's the second and third. Make the fleece wet and everything on the ground dry. Notice the wording of this. Verse 37, or verse 36. Gideon says to God, If you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. So Gideon already knew what God said. But if you really are going to do this, then show me the sign. And then at the end of the verse, then I will know that you will deliver Israel. Now, is that true? Because God, in fact, does that, and he still doesn't know, and that's why he asked for a third sign. So Gideon is a man of weak faith. Now, keep in mind that an army of 32,000 seems significant, but turn to chapter 8, verse 10, because I want to show you the size of the Midianite army. Midian, remember, allied themselves with the Amalekites and the, the other eastern people. Apparently this nomadic group from the east of the desert and notice how many people. Chapter 8, verse 10. Now, Ziba, and by the way, here's a spoiler alert. I'm going to tell you what happens at the end of this battle. Gideon wins. Okay. Uh, chapter 8, verse 10. Now, Ziba and Zelmunna, these are the kings of Midian, were in uh, Karkar and their armies with them, about 15,000 men, and all who were left of the entire army of the sons of, east, of the east. For the fallen were 120,000 swordsmen. So, there are 15,000 remaining in addition to the two kings. And then, so far, the ones who have died in battle, 120,000. So, while Gideon has a significant army, he's still outnumbered, isn't he? So, sometimes it's easy for us to say, well, Gideon, come on, you had plenty of people and you shouldn't have been doubting God. But, but he still was outnumbered. And so he asks for another sign back in chapter 6, verses 36 through 40. Cause there to be Wet, uh, cause the fleece to be wet and the ground to be dry. And God grants the request. Verse 38. And then, now He's had three promises. I will be with you. Have I not sent you? Surely I will be with you. And now two signs. He, he consumes the offering at the rock there under the tree. And, and now He's shown that the fleece could be wet by itself. And now Gideon asks for a third sign. This will be three signs and three promises. And he says, this time, make the fleece dry and the ground wet. God grants his request in verse 40. What about us? When it's time for us to make a decision, would it be okay for us to ask God for a sign? Is the Bible commending our asking for God, uh, of God for a sign? I want you to notice here, uh, particularly in verse 39, that Gideon, I believe, knows that this is wrong. 
Look at verse 39. Then Gideon said to God, Do not let your anger burn against me that I may speak once more. Now, why would he say something like that? He, in fact, knew that what he was doing was not an act of faith. It was sin. He was not trusting God for His Word. And certainly the rest of Scriptures tell us that we should not be asking for a sign when we go to make a decision. Remember Zacharias when he was questioned by God's angel in Luke 1, 18-20. What did the angel do? When he questioned the angel, I should say, the angel said, you're going to have a son. And yes, he made he struck his mouth so that he could not speak. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 16, 4. An evil, adulterous generation asks for a sign. Speaking of the Pharisees. They have the Messiah Himself right in front of them. And they say, if you're really Him, let's see it. Let's see proof. And Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation ask for a sign. So I think the Scriptures are clear that we should not be asking God for signs when it's time for us to make a decision. The point of Gideon's weakness was not that Gideon didn't know what God wanted him to do. It was that he didn't trust Him. He says, if you show me this, then I'll know that you will deliver me. Well, God, from God's perspective, I already showed you. I already told you. I gave you a sign already. It was that Gideon didn't trust God. And isn't that usually where we fail? It's not that we need a sign so that God can tell us what door to go through. It's that we know what we need to do, but we don't want to do it. We don't want to trust God. Our problem usually isn't that we don't know what God wants or that, that God hasn't written down what He wants for us. It's that we think we might have a better way. Or we think that God might not follow through on His promise, which I think Gideon's problem. He might not follow through. And yet God is very patient with a man who was essentially testing God. God was patient with him. Leon Morris writes about this story. He says that God deals more tenderly and graciously with Gideon than a father does with his children. Have you experienced that kind of grace from God when you doubted Him? Have you experienced that kind of loving, fatherly care for you when you were unsure of His promise? God alone will receive the glory when He uses people of weak faith. The reason that God gets the glory here in Gideon's uncertainty is that Gideon could have boasted in himself if he had self-confidence, if he had confidence in himself and his own abilities. Did you ever consider that God could have, if He wanted to, He could have destroyed the Midianites and the Amalekites? on his own, apart from any human involvement, couldn't he? We've seen him do it in other places where he sent fire from heaven. Apparently some kind of lightning that caused a fire. Or he, he opens up the earth and swallows them. Or he could send a plague. Or any number of things to destroy them on his own, apart from human involvement. But God, in His mercy, loves to use people who need to grow in their faith 
like Gideon and like you and me so that He can make His power known through them. And so that at the end of it, they can turn around and say, God, You deserve all the glory. I was doubting You the whole way. I needed all these promises and all these signs. I couldn't take You at Your Word. And yet God lovingly uses us so that He can receive the glory at the end. Skip forward to chapter 7, verse 9, because we see His continued reluctance. God here is going to whittle down the size of His army to 300 in the first part of chapter 7. And then verses 9-15, through 15, we see Gideon's weak faith continue. In verse 9, he reassures Gideon that he will have the victory. Now the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given Midian into your hands. And now, verses 10 and 11, God essentially says, before you ask for sign number four, if you're afraid, go down to the Midianite camp and just eavesdrop on a few people. And I'm going to show you something. Look at verse 10. But if you are afraid to go down, go with Pura, your servant, down to the camp and you will hear what they say. And afterward, your hand will be strengthened that you may go down against the camp. And so he went down with Purah, his servant, down to the, the outposts of the army that was in the camp. And here we have in verses 12 through 14, we're reminded of the great number of, of people here in Midian. They're not just an insignificant army. They have camels. That was a significant advancement in war uh, technology, so to speak. And it says there in the text that they were as numerous as sand on the seashore. Just everywhere you looked, there were camels. People and camels. And yet, we also are reminded not only of their great number, but God's sovereign power. Look at verse 13. When Gideon came, behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend. And he said, Behold, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian, and it came to the tent and struck it so that it fell, and it turned upside down so the tent lay flat. His friend replied, This is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. We learn here in verses 13 through 14 that God is sovereign over his enemies. He has power, he has control over them. Think of how unlikely this is. That one of them just happens, okay, I'm going to say it in these terms, but you recognize this is all of God, just happens to have a dream about a dinner roll flying through the sky and hitting a tent and knocking it over. That's essentially what this, this, uh, this bread that's talked about here, that's the size of it. He just happens to have this silly dream and he recounts it to his friend and his friend, who is a pagan, just happens to interpret that this is not other than Gideon and that God's going to kill us as a result of this. This is a, this is a, a prophecy of what's going to happen. And what we see here is while it seems pretty amazing that all this happened just coincidentally as Gideon just happens to get to the outskirts of the camp, this conversation's going on. There are no coincidences in God's universe. He is in control of it all, isn't He? And what happens to Gideon when he sees God for who He is? Look at verse 15. When Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation... He bowed in worship. It reminds us of what happened with Isaiah. 
He sees God for who He is and He bows in worship. And then He offers Himself for service and that's exactly what Gideon does here. He responds with worship and service. He gets the troops ready. The very next verse. Same verse, verse 15. Arise for the Lord has given the camp of... I am sure now. This is God. I have seen Him. I've seen Him work. God delivers through an inferior leader. God delivers His people through inferior means. First, through an inferior leader. Second, God delivers through an inferior military. Verses 1-8. through Gideon... In verses 33 through 35 of chapter 6, had rounded up the troops, and at this point he has 32,000 men in total. But notice verse 2 of chapter 7 that is too many men. The Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into your hands. If God were dependent upon us, we would expect the opposite that Gideon would need more men because God needs some help. But since God is not dependent upon us, we are dependent on Him, God can save, 1 Samuel 14.6, by many or by few. So God starts to reduce the size of the army in verse 3. He says, alright Gideon, I want you to do something a little bit unusual. You think you're ready for battle, but you're not. You need to reduce the size of your army. So just take a poll. Find out all of the people who are afraid to go into battle. Anybody who's afraid, send them back to the camp. They're not going to be a part of the battle. That's what happens in verse um, verse 3. And so, this is where we, we see the numbers that he originally had at the end of verse 3. So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remained. Now this is interesting that God would say something like this because look down at verse 10 again. Remember what God was saying to... Gideon later. But if you are afraid to go down, go with your servant down to the camp and you'll hear what they say. And then what happens? Verse 11, he goes down with the servant. So what's the implication there? Gideon was afraid. And yet God said, with the 32,000 people, send the 22,000 that are afraid home. Gideon should have been a part of that group and yet God still uses him. I can't imagine what Gideon must be thinking now. He was already outnumbered 4 to 1 in the battle with 32,000 men. Now with only 10,000 men, he's outnumbered by 13 to 1. What is God doing here? How could we possibly win 10,000 against 135,000? And yet, verse 4, there's still more to follow. Verse 4, Then the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. And then he goes about this way in which he's going to reduce the size of the army even more. This time, God, I believe, wants those who are alert and He wants to get rid of those who are careless. Those who are alert are those who, the text says, lap the water like a dog. Now, it doesn't mean that they use their tongues like that because in the next verse, it says those who take their hand to their mouth. Let me show you that there at the end of verse 4. It shall be that those who I say of you, this one shall go with you, he shall go. I'll skip down to verse 5. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, You shall separate everyone who laps the, daughter, the, the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well, and here's the, two, the second category, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Now, those who, and here's the description of what it means to lap the, the water like a dog. Verse 6. 
those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth. So here's the imagery that I think God is using. That like a, a, a dog uses its tongue as kind of like a, a cup or something that goes down and reaches the bottom of his tongue to the water and then brings it back. That's what these men are doing with their hands. They're taking their hands down to the water and then they're bringing it to their mouth. And apparently what they were doing is they would walk all the way into the water and they'd be able to drink like this while they can keep their head on a swivel and make sure that there's no danger around. Those men are the ones that God wants. The other ones are down on their hands and knees and they got their head facing down so that if any trouble comes, they wouldn't be able to see it. They're not very alert when it comes to battle. Now, the text doesn't say that, and so we can't be completely sure about that. But what we do know is that the army has been reduced from 32,000 to 10,000 and now down to 300. Notice verse 6. Now, the number of those who lapped putting their hand to their mouth was 300, but all the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. And the Lord said, I'm going to deliver you with the 300 who lapped. So send all the other men home, the end of verse 7 says. So the 300 men took the the provisions and their trumpets and so on. 300 men is less than 1% of the original size of the army. 32,000. And so now, they're not outnumbered 4 to 1. They're outnumbered 450 to 1. That for every Jewish soldier, there were 450 enemies. On a level battlefield, who is going to win that every time? It's going to be the enemy, the ones who have the 450. But this isn't a level battlefield, is it? Because with Israel, God is on their side. And so, in this case, God's trying to show that He can accomplish His purposes and He will accomplish His purposes through an inferior military Because a superior army or a tactically proficient army might have given Israel an opportunity to boast. But with a little army of 300, is there any glory that they can steal from God in that? See, when God uses a small number of people to do great things for Him, it's not that He doesn't want to use more people. It's that He wants to make sure that He's at the center of attention as He deserves. And yet, at the same time, He doesn't want to just accomplish His purposes apart from people. He wants to use people, even if it's a small number, so that they can watch Him work and so that they can recount His mercies for years to come. God delivers through inferior means. Through an inferior man, through an inferior military, and then thirdly, through inferior methods. Verses 16 through 25. Here's the plan. Gideon would divide the group of 300 men into three apparently equal groups of 100 men. Every man would have a trumpet. Every man would have an empty pitcher. Inside the empty pitcher was a torch. And they would take this to the outskirts of the Midianite camp, which is below them in the valley. And on Gideon's signal, everyone would blow their trumpet and break open their pots to reveal these torches. Now typically in a nighttime battle, there was one torch for potentially hundreds or thousands of troops. But every single one of these troops had a torch. But it was hidden. The night watchman would not be able to see it because it was hidden inside the pitcher. It would be completely quiet. And 
Then at the right time, when they heard Gideon, when they heard that trumpet sound, they would break their pitchers to reveal their torches and they would sound their trumpet. The specific time in which this would happen was going to be at the third watch of the night. The third watch of the night. The third watch of the night is... Um, trying to find this in the text here. Uh, middle watch, excuse me, verse 19. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just posted the watch. So in the ancient Near East, the Jews had three watches. At the time of Jesus, they had four watches, but that's not important to our text. During this time, there were three watches. The first watch, the middle watch, and the last watch, the first, second, and third. They would last four hours each. And a watch would be, as you can imagine, a time when guards would watch. They would be on guard to protect the camp. The first watch lasted for four hours from 6 to 10 p.m. And then from 10 to 2 a.m. And then from 2 a.m. to 6 p.m. So what we learn in the text, verse 19, is that at the beginning of the middle watch, 10 p.m., at the changing of the guards, Gideon made his move. And this starts a big commotion. Look at verse 21. Each stood in his place around the camp. Okay, so they're all, just picture them all standing there with a trumpet in one hand and their torch that's hidden inside the pitcher in the other hand. They're all standing around the camp in three companies. And all the army ran after uh, they had broken. Verse 20 tells us they broke their pitchers. They blew their trumpets. Verse 22, When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another even throughout the whole army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah towards Zerah, as far as the edge of Abel Maholah by Tabith. So, imagine what it must have been like for the Midianite soldiers who were asleep in their tents. They wake up to hear this racket, this sound of war is coming. And they look out to the hills and they see all these torches which apparently represent thousands and thousands of people and inside the camp as their eyes are starting to adjust what do they see? Not any of the Israelites they're not down there. The changing of the guard. These guards are they have their weapons. The new ones that are going on duty and the old ones that are coming off duty getting ready to go to bed they're all standing outside their tent with weapons and in the silhouette of the night, of the torches behind them, they think enemies are in our camp. And so they take their swords immediately and started killing each other, not knowing that they're their own men. Many die. Others flee. Israel chases them. By this time, Israel is able to call back all the men who had been sent home so that they can kind of clean up the mess that the 300 men had started. And in verse 25, we learn that they capture the two leaders. These are not the kings, but two of the, probably the military leaders, Oreb and Zeb. And, and, and so God, in using this inferior method, is able to take the glory. Why? Because if they had a superior method, if these 300 men were somehow, you know, like a bunch of uh, Samsons, and they were able to take on 450 people each, then who would be able to have reason to boast? Israel would, right? 
But with this inferior method, we're just kind of standing on the top of the hill and, hey, here's a light and here's a sound. And all of a sudden, they all attack each other. Only God can receive the credit. Do you see? God uses inferior means to accomplish His purpose so that He alone receives the glory. He uses an inferior man and here He uses an inferior military and they use inferior methods. And the reason for this This is our second final point. That God uses this means to ensure that He alone receives the glory. There are we're going to get to chapter eight, but the key verse that I skipped over skipped over part of it. It's chapter seven, verse two. Look back to seven two. The Lord said to Gideon, This is when they have thirty two thousand men. The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. For Israel would become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. A large military with a wise leader and great methods would have given Israel, as God tells us here in verse 2, an opportunity to boast. When there are are explainable events in our lives, we can easily find ways to boast in them. But for Gideon, with a small army, and he being of weak faith and using inferior methods, only God can receive the glory. And that is in fact what happens. Look at chapter 8, verse 1, when the Ephraimites come and say, Gideon, what are you doing? Why did you let us be a part of this victory? Gideon says, "What what did I do? Look at verse 2. He said, What have I done now in comparison with you? In verse 3, God has given the leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, into your hands. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Gideon, why didn't you call us to fight so that we could take pleasure in this victory? Why couldn't we get some of the credit for winning the battle? And Gideon says, just because I have Orb and Z up here, I haven't done anything compared to you. Let me tell you what happened here. I didn't trust God. I had this small military and this crazy method, and yet somehow we got this victory. Four, the chances are 450 to 1 that we would win something like this. What have I done in comparison to you? In other words, I can't even take the credit. And I'm the leader of the military. And because, the reason I can't is because, verse 3, God has given the leaders of Midian into your hands. We can't take the credit when we have positive victories that take place in our lives. It's as foolish as the axe boasting over the one who chops it, like Isaiah 10 says. How foolish is the axe? It's just a tool in the hand of the, of the person who's using it. Same way we are the axe. God simply uses us to accomplish His purposes and we have nothing to boast about. The source of deliverance may have been overlooked. If you, if you didn't see those two verses, verse 2 and then verse 3 of chapter 8, chapter 7, verse 2, and chapter 8, verse 3, then then you should have seen it as we went along. Look at chapter 6, verse 14. 
chapter 6, verse 14. I just want to take you back through the text quickly and show you just that God is behind it all. The Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? Verse 16, But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. Look at verse 36. Gideon said to God, If you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken, then do this. And God, in fact, does what he asks. Chapter 7, verse 7. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who laughed and will give the Midianites into your hand. Verse 9. The same night came about that the Lord said, Arise, go down to the camp, for I have given it into your hands. Verse 14. The friend Midianite says this, This is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. Behind it all is God at work. Sometimes we can read through things like this and we can think about our circumstances in our own life and we can miss that God's there all along. It was He that promised the victory. He that brought about the victory. And He brought it about in such a way by using inferior means so that He alone could receive the glory. So we need to recognize a few things this evening. Number one, recognize that God is powerful. God is powerful. How can we get the victory in anything that we accomplish? Zechariah 4.6 says, Not by might, nor by power, but by My Spirit, says the Lord Almighty. God alone will receive the glory. He accomplishes what He wants to do. And so when God is on our side, the enemies that oppose us are not as powerful as they appear. For Gideon, they were as numerous as locusts on the sand or, or, or sand on the seashore, but God was on Gideon's side. And for us, our enemies, the world, the flesh, the devil, demons, they are more powerful than us, yes. But with God on our side, Satan is no match for us. We sang it tonight, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever separate us from God's hand. Satan is no match for God. He can bring about all of his greatest forces. The odds could be completely against us. But when God's on our side, no enemy can defeat us. Number two, we need to recognize that God doesn't need us in the sense that God isn't dependent upon us. God can save by many or by few. Without God, we are nothing. Without us, God is still God. God does not need us in that sense. However, He happily uses us. And He wants us to see His glory. And so He kind of brings us along for the ride and says, here, I'm going to bring you along even with all your weak faith your inferior methods, your, your, your inferior means. I'm going to, to accomplish, accomplish this thing through you so that you will see my glory. You will see my power. God doesn't need us, but He happily uses us so that we can praise Him. Number three, we need to recognize that God uses humans to accomplish His purposes. 
God often uses humans to accomplish His purposes. God could have annihilated the Midianites with a natural catastrophe without involving any Israelites. Instead, He chose to use them. And can I just put this out here that God can accomplish whatever He wants to on this earth that He wants to accomplish building His church, bringing people to Christ. He could have done it in any way because He's the all-powerful God, but He chose to use you. He chose to call you into His family and make you a representative of His. God often uses humans to accomplish His purposes. Number four, recognize that God uses those who are weak. When we are weak, God is strong. Gideon's faith was lacking, but God bolstered Gideon's confidence in himself, that is, in God, by revealing himself to Gideon in various ways. And the result was that Gideon actually acted in faith. We may disparage or, or discount Gideon's faith, but remember, he brought the animal in a time of great famine or great blight, and he also went to battle against a group where he only had 0.2% the size of their army. And he won. While we have seen the weakness of Gideon's faith very clearly, Hebrews 11 exalts him, or commends him, I should say, for his faith. That through his weakness, God was made strong. John 3.30 says, He must become greater and I must become less. John the Baptist speaking of Jesus. There is strength in our weakness. God finds strength in our weakness. And, and so we need to, to recognize that it's not us. It's not our strength that matters. It's God's. And it's our dependence upon God. It, it's like we are standing on the rock in the middle of a raging river and we have all of these crutches, these sticks and things to hold us up to make sure that we stand firmly. And God brings about a, a torrent or, or some sort of huge waves to knock out all of these things that we're holding on to so that we plant our feet in the rock alone. That's all that God wants. He doesn't want us to hold on to God and these other things. To, to trust in God and these other things. He wants to move all those out of the way so that in the end, when we're standing on the rock, we're thankful for the rock. And that's what he did with Gideon. Gideon had all these little crutches that he was holding on to just to hold himself up in the middle of the raging river. And God moves them all of the way so that he's standing on the rock alone. He can say nothing else then. This is all God. I did nothing. God gave Midian into our hands. Finally, we need to recognize that God's greatest goal is to exalt Himself. God's greatest goal is to exalt Himself. And for God, it's right. Because there is no greater being than God. For us, it's wrong because there is a greater being than us, right? For God, it's not. For Him to exalt Himself is completely right. Imagine how different our lives would be if we were not glory thieves. We were not credit thieves. We were trying to get all the credit for ourselves. How differently would we serve in this church? How differently would we serve in our families if we really believed that God is responsible for all things and that we deserve no credit? Part of our hesitation in doing various tasks and doing various things 
in our lives is because we're concerned about who's going to get the credit. But what if we were like Gideon at the end of this in chapter 8? We weren't considering concerned about getting the credit for ourselves because we recognize that God alone deserves the glory. How differently would we live? What was I able to do in comparison to you? I was simply an instrument, a vessel in your hand. And I think for all of eternity, we will be saying that same story. I am standing on not my own righteousness, not my own goodness and my own works. Praise God, I'm standing on the works of Jesus Christ. What have I done in comparison to anyone else who's made it here to heaven? God often removes the resourcefulness of men so that He alone can be glorified. God works through us best when we are vulnerable. And it changes our focus from ourselves to God. That We recognize that we're not the reason for our success. We're simply the conduit. And, and our faith ought to increase in times like this. When God just takes a situation and shows that, you know what, I deserve the glory here, then, then we ought to be reminded of that situation and ought to re- increase our faith to depend upon Him more and minimize the dependence on our own weak selves. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful for the reminders that You give to us that You alone deserve the glory. And we ask for Your forgiveness for stealing the glory from You at times. We sometimes build our lives around how we will present ourselves and our circumstances so that it will sound like we were something special. And I just pray that You would help us to see more clearly that all of our lives ought to be around, built around the fact that You alone deserve the glory. And I'm thankful for times, specific times in my life in which You have shown yourself strong in times of weakness where I could say nothing else other than that was you at work. I pray that you would continue to remind me of your strength and remind me of my weakness. Help our church to be the same. Help us not to be glory thieves, but to be concerned primarily about you receiving the credit that you deserve. Lord, we want to be more pleasing in Your sight. Lord, remove the pride from us and help us to live in humility and walk in service to You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.